Hi there. My name's Ryan Bernstein, and this is 50 States of Mind, a cross-country journey to all 50 states to talk to mayors, governors, and voters on both sides of the aisle to figure out what's really going on in the United States. I'll be honest, when I started this trip, I wasn't optimistic about the state of our country, but after visiting our neighborhoods, towns, and communities, I've been given an exciting education that has allowed me to listen, challenge my preconceived notions, and taught me something new. Are you ready? Let's go. State number four, Maine. Maine? <laughs> oh, shoot. Maine. Well, I thought because your name rhymes with it. Elaine Maine? Great. That's wonderful. I, I don't make these decisions in a way that's super logical. Obviously. I just. <laughs> Anyway, so we have a very special guest today. Um, young lady, what is your name? Elaine. <laughs> <laughs> you know the My Fair Lady thing, like the rain in Spain is mainly the yeah. plane. I was waiting for you to say that. Can you tell me a little bit about where you're from, where your family's from? Yeah. So I tell people I'm from London, but really I'm the last stop on the Oyster card. <laughs> My dad is from London. He grew up all over the place, mainly in Hackney. But my mother is from Galway. She was born in Galway in Ireland. And she came over to the UK when she was 17. And she's been here ever since. Wow. 17 is young. Yeah, yeah. The reasons that she left Ireland were for reasons I think a lot of young girls um left Ireland in like the 1950s, 60s and 70s, but we'll get into that. Sure. And what's your relationship like to Ireland now? What's my relationship like with Ireland now? It's a huge part of my identity. It's something that I can't deny, even though I could if I wanted to. I mean, I don't have an Irish accent and I might have red hair, but it's completely fake. Like I, did, I was not given this by my genes. Although I do have the easily burnt skin. Oh, that's good. Yeah, there's a lot of something to be proud of. Thanks, Mum. Yeah, it's it's a huge part of who I am, and um, I try and go back to Ireland as often as I can. The majority of my family is still in Ireland, and uh, they all still live in Galway um, or around around Galway in the west. When I was growing up, I went to a Catholic primary school. My dad's not religious, so when my parents were deciding how to bring me up, they decided that. They would send me to a Catholic primary school. And then when I reached 11, I could choose whether I wanted to go to a Catholic secondary school or to a state secondary school. And I made the choice to go to a state secondary school. I think because it felt fair to my dad. He's not big on the whole Irishness. The fact that I have an Irish passport and I don't have a British passport is a sense of great pain to him. <laughs> so wait, what's the relationship between the British and the Irish? Well, that's a very difficult question right now <laughs> i think it really depends on what part of ireland you're talking about if you're talking about the republic of ireland then good mostly it, and the major cities in the republic are dublin and galway and galway yeah um but if you're talking about northern ireland then obviously that is a very different story right now and that's belfast yeah belfast and the six counties because that's the one that's connected to the united kingdom northern ireland yes so northern ireland and the republic of ireland are split um, by a border, well, an invisible border, really. Like, there's no sign, you know, if you're driving between them. It's, 
you would barely be able to tell that you'd crossed the border. Oh, there's no checkpoint or anything? No, there's no checkpoint. But that's that's the contention with Brexit and the backstop at the moment. What's going to happen if we leave with no deal, is there? And a hard border has to be put back into place. Oh, because people could go to the Republic of Ireland and just sort of scoot into the UK? Well, effectively, the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland would be the main and only border between the UK and the EU because the UK obviously is an island and it's not connected anywhere. So would you say that you think of yourself as Irish more than British? Oh, no. It's definitely like a 50-50 even split. I got my Irish passport a long time ago, long before this whole Brexit madness happened. When the day after the results of the referendum, there were queues outside the Irish embassy in London because suddenly everyone wanted to get their Irish passports. But I had, I'd had mine long before that because this was, a, this was a, an identity that I'd felt for a very long time being brought up with an Irish mother and who still feels very connected to her home. It's not something that you can just deny, you know, and it's difficult, you know, to claim an Irish identity sometimes as a second generation Irish person because Ireland doesn't have its own language really that's nationally spoken um, anymore, which is incredibly sad, though there are strong parts of Ireland, like the Gaeltex, where they still speak Irish and there is a huge Irish speaking community on Twitter and pop-up girl texts like in Dublin I think they run like sorry pop-up girl <laughs> pop-up girl texts it's like um the girl tech is like an, an Irish speaking community where you like only speak Irish so like the pop-up girl tech is like they might take over a pub for a night and you just go there and speak Irish all night and have a drink and have a conversation in Irish with other people speaking Irish can you speak Irish <laughs> I wish I could. Do you know um, anything in Irish? I do. Um, the odd word. It's funny, like when I was growing up, my mum would come out with like random sayings. Sometimes it wouldn't necessarily be Irish language, but it would be like things that only make sense in Ireland. Like the way that you place words together like wouldn't necessarily make sense to a British person. Or they might it might be something that a British person would hear and they'd be like, What on earth <laughs> did you just say? One of her favourites, um, when she was telling me off, um, say I left the dishes in the sink again, she'd be like, what am I after saying to you? Which doesn't make any sense. But there's loads of things like that. And it's, I, I find it always like really fun when, um, when I see my Irish friends or, um, or I meet another Irish person and we get talking about home because the sense of home is so strong in Ireland and for, Irish immigrants and second second generation um, Irish as well, but whenever I get talking, you know, we talk about traditions of family and like one of them is like the wooden spoon, and I love talking about the wooden spoon in front of a British audience because, like, hitting a child in the UK is like hugely frowned upon, but like, oh my god, the threat of the wooden spoon when I was a child was like. Wait, so, like, you were going to get hit with the wooden spoon? Oh, yeah, no, like, right. So <laughs> every single Irish child in Ireland and a lot of second-generation Irish children, the threat of the wooden spoon is real. Like, it was, it would terrify you. My auntie was really bad for it. She, um, she child-minded me when I was really young, and um, she, my mother's sister, and it would be, like, me and my cousin who was around the same age as me. 
and um, you know if we were bad or something she'd take the wooden spoon out of the drawer and she'd smack it against her hand and then she'd chase us around the house and we were screaming for our lives my god Neil my cousin always got it worse than me like if he if she got him he'd whack her she'd whack him across the back of the legs like where it stung but you know so she wasn't doing it like a fun game like oh auntie's got the wooden spoon it was like I'm going to get whooped yeah oh yeah no like she'd whack you yeah, she would. I mean, the thing is, if I tell that to, like, some of my English friends who didn't grow up in this community or don't have any connection to Ireland, they look at me with, like, horror. I'm like, it's just the wooden spoon. It was a thing. Like, But, you know, I've had conversation with friends who are second-generation African or, you know, Nigerian, Ghanaian, whatever, and they're like, oh, yeah, the wooden spoon. That's crazy to me. My parents were just, you know... Hit me like normal people with their fists. <laughs> with their fists. <laughs> they push me downstairs. Yeah. They, you know, broke your leg. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I prefer the old-fashioned way, but who am I to found in other cultures? Um, so, have you been to America before? Once. Um, I went to Florida when I was eleven. Uh, told an American guy that I met at a bar crew once that um, I went to Florida, and he was like, "Oh, you went to America's dick." <laughs> and I was like, cool. I've never heard that before, but it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> there are alligators all over it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Crash course, what it's like to have a dick. That's my next podcast. Brian um, yeah. Why did you go to Florida? Um, so I did what probably a lot of um, children brought up in the UK who could afford to did which was I went for the theme parks Bush Gardens and Ep- Epcot and um what's the one with the whale the horrible sea one SeaWorld yeah we did we did SeaWorld which was horrible we didn't like SeaWorld I should say that Florida theme parks are not reflective of the country as a whole <laughs> <laughs> no, obviously I know that. Although I did meet some American people, um, it wasn't just like the whole time with my mom and dad. Like we did get chatting to a group of college kids in the line for something, a ride or something. Um, it was it was so odd. I was really intimidated by them. <laughs> I was only eleven, and obviously they were all like eighteen, and they wanted me to get in like pictures with them. Yeah, they like shared their fries. With us, that sounded wrong to say. They shared their chips with us. <laughs> like, oh, um, you got the, the lingo down. Trying. I mean, Americans are very generous. Can you can you give me your best American accent? <laughs> I voted for Bernie in the primaries, but I voted for Hillary in the general election. <laughs> that was, it was terrible. You sound... No, it's authentic. It just sounds like you're like a bit of a robot, but I like it. I feel like I could do a Southern accent better. Hit me. Okay. Turn off the barbecue, Frank. <laughs> that was terrible. No, I, I mean, I like, really, it's really, the opening lines of the worst Tennessee yeah, Williams play ever. Yeah, really, really bad rundown Tennessee Williams play. So w- what are your big takeaways from the U.S. and your time there? Well, it's just, it's such a diverse and split kind of culture. There, there doesn't seem to be a consensus of feeling in America. like. It's so split. Do you think there's a consensus of feeling over here? Not at the moment, no. But is there more of one? 
Um, generally, I would say London is incredibly diverse. London, I don't think, applies to this at all. But, like, when you get out to further up counties and, like, the north and, some, and stuff, I think there's probably, like, a, and I don't like to say this, but there's probably, like, a nostalgia. There's a very, like, nostalgia for Britishness, you know? And how can you blame them, you know? They know the past. They know what happened. The future is scary and uncertain. And I think people hold on to the past in unhealthy ways sometimes, culturally speaking, definitely. That's why traditions hold up. I think one of the most terrifying sayings in the world is, well, it's always been done this way. Always. We've always smacked children with wooden spoons. <laughs> yeah. Is there a question that you've always had about America or wanted to ask about the country? I do not understand the fascination around your presidential candidates. Like, it's fanatic. Like, I I watched your Instagram story when you went to the Trump rally, and it was terrifying. It was like a Kanye West concert. That's not a thing in really anywhere else that I know or I'm familiar with. You don't get super amped up about Theresa May? <laughs> Can you imagine Theresa May coming out with Sex Pistols like t-shirt on, <laughs> raring to go? I mean, people at the Trump rally were screaming, like 70-year-old women were screaming like they were seeing, I don't know, the Beatles. John Bowie. John Bowie. Wait, Bon Jovi. <laughs> bon <Jovi>. John Bowie? <laughs> that was terrible. Are they Irish? Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to hit you with a wooden spoon if you lost an Irish point. <laughs> you cut that out, please. Yeah, no. Did you see the clip of Theresa May uh, walking out before she gave a speech and she was, like, dancing awkwardly to... What was it? Was it Dancing Abba? Queen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I dance. saw it. That is a very apt comparison for how the UK feel about their leaders. So what do you know about the state of Maine besides the fact that it rhymes with Elaine's... In High School Musical 2, there is a song, and I'm not even sure of the lyric, but she's like something imported from Maine, and I, I have the clearest day memory of going to my mum, what's Maine? She's like, it's a place in America. And I was like, oh, that's it. That's, that's literally the only thing I know about Maine. Well, I think we know why they chose that lyric. It's because it rhymes with everything. So if you had to paint a picture for me of Maine, what would it look like? I'm thinking about where it is geographically and it's probably is it close to canada yeah yeah so they must get pretty spectacular seasons in maine um and i've I've seen pictures of american autumns and it looks gorgeous like the the one thing that really gets me about american autumns is that the types of trees that we have in america are so different to the uk in the uk autumnal colors are very yellow and green but in america they're like vibrant and burning reds and like burnt oranges and they're gorgeous when i showed up in maine i went to portland yeah which is the largest city in maine i think it's about sixty thousand people and it is a seafront town everything is they're not big tall buildings it's still a city but it sits right on the ocean and maine is famous for its lighthouses and they're really famous for lobster well for what lobster what's Lobster. Lobster? Oh, right. Lobster. A lobster. So like you have like a lobster roll or a fresh boiled lobster. And actually when I got there, the first thing I did was we went to this place called the Portland Lobster Co. And I bought a shirt with a lobster on it. And I went to the bar to pick up my 
boiled lobster. And I went back to my seat where the t-shirt was sitting in the bag and someone had stolen my lobster shirt. Wow. Like I was gone for five minutes and I came back. It was a medium. I was like, is everyone just a freaking klepto in Maine? <laughs> but I went back up to the bar. I was like, sorry, did someone clear a plate and maybe a shirt? And they ended up giving me a free shirt with a oh. lobster on it. Well, that's nice. It's really cute. Portland Lobster Co. Got to give them a plug because they really fucked me up. Although I just can't understand why someone would steal from me. <laughs> it was like a $5 t-shirt. I probably got a $20 t-shirt out of it. Anyway, people are very nice there. So you're going to be listening to two interviews today. The okay. first is with the mayor of Portland. Well, I think Portland, uh, look, I grew up in New York City, so it doesn't get any bigger than that in terms of cities. And um, I think the reason that I'm here is that you really get all of the stuff that you get in a big city like New York uh, in a place like Portland in this city. Uh, but just on a much smaller scale, much more manageable scale. And by that, I don't mean just all the good things. I mean, including the bad things, because I think that's part of what makes a city really vital, especially for a young person. I'm not shy about saying I'm a hard-charging progressive mayor and I'm trying to get a, a, a progressive agenda passed because that's what this city uh, elected me to do. I think this city is a very progressive city and they want us to take care of our own. And so, you know, as this economic boom happens... We have to make sure we don't lose the people who really help build the city and who help keep that diversity that makes our city so vital. You studied theater at Juilliard, correct? I did, yeah. And at the High School of Performing Arts before that. So. At LaGuardia? Yeah. Oh, really? I did. Yeah. A lot of friends from LaGuardia. It's yeah. A, it's a great school. Can you talk about the transition from theater and acting to the world of politics? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I went to the high school performing arts, which back in my day actually was called the high school performing arts. It combined with music and art. And that's when we became LaGuardia. So my senior year, we were one school. So I started there when I was in ninth grade. My father was in the theater in New York and my grandmother uh, was in the theater in the Midwest. So I grew up in a theater family. And I think because of that, that's kind of what I knew. And so I got very involved in the theater, obviously went to the high school performing arts and then got into Juilliard. And, you know, there was this part of you, part of me, I think that, you know, like your father's a mechanic, so you become a mechanic or, you know, your mother's a doctor, so you become a doctor and you kind of follow the path of what you know. And I think that's kind of the path I was following. And obviously, I was being told that I was pretty good at it. You know, it's very hard to get into a school like Juilliard. You get into a school like that, you're like, all right, well, I should probably do this. Um, and then when I turned 19, uh, I think I really started realizing that I wasn't sure that it was the decision that uh, I had made, that this is the path that I wanted to take. And I think the faculty at Juilliard recognized that as well. And um, at age 19, uh, decided to go a different route. And at that time, came up to Maine and kind of disappeared into the woods for a year. I first got hooked up politically uh, with a with electoral politics with a guy named Tom Andrews, who was a U.S. congressperson from this area. And he was very progressive. And he showed me, inspired me, that you can be progressive and win. Do you think local politics has been forgotten in the renewed interest in the national theater of politics? Um, forgotten. I, I don't know if it's been forgotten because I don't really know how much it was, how much we paid attention to it in the past. So I can't be comparative. But what I certainly say to folks is, look, um, in, in the state of Maine, we have had um, a, a very conservative reactionary governor for the last eight years in Paula Page. 
And for those of us in this city who have been looking for Augusta to help solve our problems, it just wasn't going to happen. And I think that has helped people locally to recognize, you know what? If we want to make sure that every worker in the city of Portland has paid sick time so they don't have to go to work sick or pay the rent, we're going to have to do it on our own because it's not getting done up in Augusta. If we want to raise the minimum wage and get workers uh, something reasonable in their pocket to be able to survive, we're going to have to do it locally because it's not going to happen in Augusta. Compared to other states, do you feel like there's a sense of bipartisanship in Maine? Can Democrats and Republicans work together? Has, Has there been a history of that? There certainly is a history of it. And when I was in the legislature, I did quite a bit of bipartisanship, um, was often uh, worked with Republicans, a couple of very conservative Republicans on some some transformative tax reform policies and um, which was great. You know, I mean, I, I often find that, you know, we think about compromise in American politics too often as cutting the baby in half. Right. And that's a terrible way to create policy instead of trying to figure out, okay, if this is what you want and this is what I want, can we have them both happen without cutting each other out? For instance, a small example on tax policy, you know, if if I want more progressive taxation, um, I may want to provide property tax relief, right, because property taxes are very regressive. And I think that that's really the best policy. My Republican colleague, his interest was around income taxes. He thought reducing income taxes would help to spur the economy. I don't agree with him for one second. I don't think reducing income taxes spurs the economy at all. There's no evidence that says it. But hey, he wants that. If I can create a more progressive taxation system through the reform I want, and he gets the income tax cut that he's looking for because he thinks, then you try to find a way to have a compromise that two people get what they are looking for. That's a better way to compromise than to say, I'm going to give you part of what you want and I get part of what I want. Have you ever been so busy that you're like, I wish I had an intern? I've been there between grad school and driving to all 50 states. Well, thanks to Gen M, now you can. Gen M offers you an apprentice for 90 days to help with your business, no matter if it's a startup or a podcast. You can search for apprentices based on skills, languages, and countries, and swipe through countless options to find the perfect person to help you grow your business. I'm such a fan of my apprentice that I'm offering everyone who signs up $10 off for clicking the link in the bio of the episode. So what are you waiting for? Start looking for a teammate today. Thoughts, questions, concerns. <laughs> concerns. I can't believe you went to Juilliard. I've always found it fascinating when someone comes from the arts and gets into politics because it's, it doesn't feel like a very traditional route. For ages after I finished my undergraduate in English literature with creative writing, um, and I would get asked that question where they're like, well, what can you really do with a literature degree? And my response for a really long time was become president of Canada or prime minister of Canada. Is that what Trudeau did? Yeah. Really? Yeah. He got a degree in English literature. So when people would say to me, well, what can you really do with a degree in English literature? Like, become prime minister of Canada. I just, and maybe this is the way that I view the world, but Traditionally, the people who I've met who are involved in the arts, like theatre, writing, painting, they have this sense of empathy and compassion. 
I'm speaking stereotypically, but um, the empathy and compassion that they have, that they express through their art generally translates to the way they present themselves to the world and hopefully sometimes to the policies that they try and get past. Yeah. What did you think of him talking about compromise? Compromising? Mm-hmm. Like cutting the baby in half is compromising? Yeah, well, firstly, I'm deeply uncomfortable by that saying. <laughs> I'm a big fan of compromising in day-to-day for general peace. You know, like I compromise with you all the time. Like I leave my dishes in the sink, you pick up after me, stuff like that. It's a compromise. Yeah. <laughs> I use your hot water bottle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will actually never forget, though, the time when I came home and you were sat on the sofa, shivering like a bird, like a baby bird, <laughs> shivering. And I was like, Ryan, are you okay? This house is freezing cold. It's a really, it's a cold house, but I also think that you would be used to it if you had gone to university in the UK. Is it that cold? It's, student houses in the UK have a horrendous tradition of being shitholes. Like, freezing cold, mouldy, horrible shitholes. My third house at university had a legit hole in the wall. By that, I mean, like, if you took the piece of the wall out, you could see through to the street. Like, a boiler just never worked. I think we were taking cold showers for about six months. Like, it was crazy. I couldn't even do it. (laughs) I I could not take a cold shower. I couldn't now, but at the time, it was like, you never really had a choice. You could go to the gym, right? Well, if you could afford to go to the gym. Oh, you didn't get gym membership with your schooling? No, you had to pay for it. UK school is so different because in America, you go to university, you live in the dorm the first year. You have to be on the meal plan. You get free gym membership. It's just like you're... You a meal plan? Yeah. That's ridiculous. How much do you pay for university per year? Like $60,000. Per year? Mm-hmm. Per year? That's insane. How much do you pay? Nine grand a year. Well, that's, I guess, there you go. That is, but that, no one, how can anyone afford that? My parents couldn't afford that. My parents couldn't afford the nine grand. I had to take out a loan. That's what it is. I mean, that's why there's so many issues with going to college. I mean, you need to do to get a job, basically, in America. If it's not working on an oil rig, which you technically would make more money at than half of the shitty jobs I've had. But yeah, you need to take out student loans. You go into tremendous debt. It's, uh... That is disgusting. Is it different by state? Or is that... If you are at a generous in-state school and you go to the public school, 35 grand a year. That is... So basically, if you think about it, you could buy a house or you could get an education. You just spend so much money to get an education and then you end up working a job where you're not compensated properly in the United States. You have to figure out your own health care and everyone kind of acts like it's your fault. And either you need to sell your soul and be in this corporate position or maybe you make a lot of money, but you hate your life. I feel like you just have a better like work-life balance here. You also don't have to sell your soul. I mean, you don't. (laughs) You don't. You don't have to sell your soul and write your soul away to get an education. I mean, nine grand a year, nine grand... Like, comparatively, it's a lot, but it's not that much. Yeah, but it, it never used to be nine grand a year. Oh, this, this David Cameron. Like, well, yeah, I mean, what was his... Nick Clegg? Nick Clegg. The liberal Democrat. <laughs> what was it before, like 4,000? 
No, it was three. So it's three three grand a year, so it like tripled. And I was the first year for it to go up. So yeah, like my my friends, because I was friends with a lot of people who were a year or two years older than me when I was at school. Um, they were all like on the three grand. It's interesting that you would think that in the UK we have a good work life balance because we don't. And I'm not saying that America and the UK are comparable. Like, what in America your standard annual leave is like what? How many days? Like ten, which is insane. But the standard annual leave in the UK is like twenty-one to twenty-five days per year for annual leave. Is that paid? Yeah. And if you quit your job, you still have healthcare. Well, we have the NHS. Yeah, it's just hard to hear you complaining about these things. <laughs> I know I can't moan. It's just there are a lot of books on by British writers Helen Russell was one of them she wrote The Year of Living Dangerously and by comparison to Scandinavia both the UK and by God definitely the America are just in like terms of what they think is acceptable how people live like no wonder everyone is suffering with anxiety and depression when you're subjected to these kind of situations and just to clarify because i think a lot of people could say like oh this is like millennials moaning they don't know what it's like to work hard i think it just is worse in context because you know that people at the top are making so much money yeah and how is it different in scandinavian countries well in scandinavia for example like the average working week and this is according to helen russell the average working week is like 34 hours and even then the benefits you get by comparison are insane yes they pay 50 percent tax which is a huge amount of tax, don't get me wrong. But with that, they get so much. They get healthcare, they get paid maternity and paternity leave. And I think the paternity leave is on par with maternity leave, which does not happen in the UK. Like paternity leave in the UK is like two weeks. They also get paid to go to university in Denmark. The government pays students to go to university. That is insane. I studied in Denmark for like a couple of months um a few years ago and they were so chilled like the level of trust in Denmark like trust in the government trust in your neighbors trust in everything was insane people would leave their babies in their prams in the street and just trust that they would be fine and they were there's something that Helen Russell writes about a lot is that trusting people makes you happier because there's a sense of contentment there's a lack of worry, there's a lack of anxiety, which means a lack of depression. Because if you're not anxious, how could you be sad? Like in very basic terms, I know it's a lot more complicated than that. And you know that I've done a lot of research into this one for my project as well. But on surface level, if you're not worried about stuff, it doesn't impact the rest of your life. Yeah. And if you're in a germane environment, the other things won't let you down. And if you do struggle with mental illness, when you're already in a hellscape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it just makes it so much worse. It exacerbates the problem. So I have one more interview for, for you. And this is with the governor of Maine. Do you know what the governor is? You know what governors are? The governor is like the mayor, but not the mayor. The governor is the governor of the entire state. The mayor is the mayor of the city. Okay, I'm with you. Got Great. it. Um, so at the time I was interviewing her, she was not the governor. 
she was it was three days away from the election and now she is elected and cool. she is a Democrat. So her name is Janet Mills. Uh, in Farmington, Franklin County, uh, we've lost mill jobs, lost textile jobs in recent decades. Shoe manufacturing is virtually gone. And so a lot of the manufacturing industries we relied on when I was a kid had disappeared. Franklin County used to host the largest toothpick manufacturer in the world. So uh, we don't have the tech jobs that uh, the Portland area has. And then my final question for you is, I'm currently living in the UK, traveling around the United States, trying to find a place to live. Uh, Why should I move to Maine? Well, because you will love it here and because we need you. (laughs) What do you mean you need me? Um, We need people. I don't even know how old you are, but I'm guessing if you're a student that you're under 50. That's true. (laughs) That you're intelligent and uh, you articulate well. And uh, we need people with brain power, like yourself, to come to Maine. We need a younger workforce. We get opportunities for you here. Uh, and so we need you. And we think you, I think you'll love it here. What do you think of the governor of Maine? The new governor of Maine. Um, brilliant that she's a woman. Love that. Not a reason to support someone. but I think she might be the first female governor of Maine. Really? Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I have a thing for first women to do things. My grandmother was the first woman to drive in her part of town in Galway. First woman to own a car and drive a car. Mary Hogan. What a ledge. It's interesting what she was saying that actually talking about my grandmother, people moving away, businesses moving away. My grandmother was widowed uh, very young and she was the mother of seven children in a town. It's not really a town in a place called Mylar in Galway. And um, once she was widowed, um, she obviously had to provide for her seven children. So she learned to drive and got a car and drove to work, which was insane. That didn't happen in the 50s and 60s in rural Ireland. There was no work, like, in the town where she was. My mother's told me stories about her driving to Dublin for, like, two weeks at a time, working as a cleaner, working as a dinner lady, because that's where things were. They were in Dublin, like, the bigger cities. Um, And I think eventually she got a job a bit closer to home, but she would have to go for, like, two weeks at a time to work at this job, and she'd come back two weeks later, spend time with the family, and then have to go back again. My cousins, um, they all go to or they all went to their local university. It's quite unusual that you would travel to a different part of Ireland to go to university, like going from Galway to Dublin. Like it does happen, obviously, but it's not the usual thing. And the local university is probably about a 40 minute drive, maybe 50 minute drive, depending on the day, from the home place where they grew up, but still they'll come back every single weekend. Everyone knows everyone and everyone recognises everyone. I remember I was at the cemetery um, near where my mother grew up, which is where all our family is buried, like Mary Hogan, John Hogan, and um, various uncles and aunties and extended family. And um, I was having quite a moment. I was standing in front of the grave having quite a moment. And I could see this woman, like, skirting around the edge of the cemetery. And she was looking at me. And I could, I could see her out of the corner of my eye, but because I was like so absorbed in this moment that I was having, 
Um, I was trying not to pay her any attention, but she was like, just kind of like circling me. <laughs> and so um, after I finished, after I like dried my tears and uh, kind of like straightened up, she approached me. She walks over to me and she goes, are you Catherine Hogan's daughter? And I was like, what? <laughs> the fact that she could even recognize me and I had no idea who she was at all. And I was like, um, yeah, she's like, oh, are you Elaine? I was like, yes, yes, I'm Elaine. I'm sorry. I don't know who you are. She's like, oh, I am Mary from down the road. I knew your mother when we were growing up. Like, it's just, it was, it was so funny and brilliant, really. The fact that people can recognize you. And she started asking me if I was, mo- if I'd moved home. It's the thing that everyone says to me. I never lived in Ireland for a long period of time. I wasn't born there. But um, every time, it's always like, oh, Elaine, when are you coming home? Lainey, when are you coming home? It's nice. Whenever you get off the plane and you like hand your passport over to the the guards and the, they see that it's an Irish passport, they always say, oh, welcome home. My nickname growing up, whenever I'd go back home, back to Ireland, was Plastic Paddy. And like, traditionally, like historically, Plastic Paddy has quite a derogatory kind of air about it and it was never used that way towards me like it was all in like good humor but like plastic paddy was kind of like you're only half you know mm-hmm. you're not actually from here and i've been out in i've been out like clubbing with my cousin and you know he'd be ordering me a drink one of one of the drinks that he likes and i really like which you don't really get in the uk is a whiskey white which is jameson and lemonade and um <laughs> he ordered me this drink and they put the bottle of lemonade on the counter so you can fill up as much lemonade as you want. And he does it for me. He puts like this little drop in. And I take a swig of it and it's so strong. And I'm like, give me that bottle of lemonade. And he stopped that up and he goes, oh, well, you're only half. Like, it's like, thanks, man. Plastic patty over here. Yeah. But I think more so plastic patty as a term is used for Americans who generate or try to manufacture an Irish culture. So it will be like an American, stereotypically from New York, Brooklyn, maybe, because there was a huge migration of the Irish to New York and Brooklyn in the 50s and 60s. I've seen the movie Brooklyn. Great film. Saoirse Ronan, great actress. But it will be like a millennial, like 20-something, who... We'll be going out on Paddy's Day wearing a Kiss Me I'm Irish t-shirt and it's her great-grandmother who's Irish. That's not necessarily well-regarded back home. It's, you know, they'll be like, all right, whatever, cool, you know. Also, Americans have a thing about saying Patty's Day, which is odd. It's Paddy. Paddy's Day. Yeah, yeah I know. Like... It's, uh, but it, it's definitely, uh, like, there was a meme going around my Irish Twitter. I have two, t- I have I have, a twi- I have one Twitter, but I definitely have two different cultures on Twitter. I've got my Irish community, my British community. But there was a meme going around in the Irish community on Twitter where it was like, should we correct the Americans that it's Paddy's Day, not Patty's Day? And this, this is going around for like a couple of weeks. This is your platform. Shout out. It's Paddy's Day. Paddy. Disclaimer. <laughs> Paddy. Like Maxi Paddy. Don't. Don't compare Sir Patrick to a sanitary towel. On that note. <laughs>
um, plastic patty over here. Um, uh, no, you don't. You don't get to call me that, <laughs> Mister American. You don't get to call me that. I'm. I think my great grandfather was Irish or something. So all right, good for you. Yeah, I'll celebrate it on Patty's Day. <laughs> Elaine, it's been such a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for your insight about Ireland being plastic patty and had the correct pronunciation of my favorite holiday because I'm one 2020 Irish. So the, the, what you're doing is the definition of manufacturing an Irish. I'm kidding. <laughs> thank you for having me on your podcast. Oh, thanks for being here. And uh, see you soon. We, we live in the same house, yeah. right? <laughs> Do you want a cup of tea? Yes, please. I was going to ask you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. For more information about 50 States of Mind, visit us on our website, 50statesofmind.org. Or like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram, at 50 States of Mind. A big thank you to the band Bright Moments for the use of their song Travelers from the album Natives. Questions? Send us an email at 50statesofmindusa at gmail.com. See you next time.